0: Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler classic, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute screen time per episode. I'm your host for these last couple of weeks, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm the creator of several podcasts, including Lockdown MLB, the old Sully Baseball Daily podcast which ran for many years and movie by minutes folks will know me as the creator of Bull Durham Minute. I've also been a TV producer, a writer, a teacher and an all-around good guy. Today we'll be breaking down Minute 130 which begins with Fred asking Al if there was anything else on his mind and ends with Homer sitting at the piano saying Wait till you'll hear this. Well, one thing I can't wait for you to hear is the voice of our returning guest. Our returning champion is coming back to do one more episode with us. You've done it with me. You've done it with other people. And now we're finishing off the week talking about Minute 130. It's my brother, Ted. How you doing, Ted? I'm doing all right. How are
1: you doing, Paulie?
0: I'm all right. And those are his, a Emmy nominee although he likes to put the caveat daytime Emmy nominee I say he is a brilliant television writer and producer and he could not wait to come back here to finish this up in this action-packed minute of a man getting up at another bad walk again one of the disadvantages sometimes in the movies by minute world is sometimes you get a moment where things are in transition like people saying goodbye and people saying hello and that's a little bit of what we're having today is hello and goodbye but there is still some movie to talk about here so the big stare down is over between frederick march and dana andrews and a wonderful little middle finger was given by dana andrews here by saying that he was going to buy the drinks absolutely and uh, it, it's funny because this is, I think in
1: every episode I've done of this, I've said, this is my favorite scene in the movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is the end of you know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I, I think it's one of the most interesting, one of the most dynamic. And I just love how both Frederick March and Dana Andrews play this scene with dignity. And there's this underlying current of of both mutual respect from what they went through in the war, even though they weren't together, mm-hmm. but they both know they were there and they did it. And, but also you see Frederick March being a, the kind of dad he probably would have been before the war in some ways, although he did in the previous moment say, my, my, do you want to go outside and settle this? I'm not sure he would have done that before the war. That that could be a little bit of that coming in. But you do see the the, the protective father who was circling the wagons around his daughter and his family because that's what he was fighting for over there. And he's not going to have a playboy toy with his daughter's emotions.
0: as uh, I talked about with Jacqueline T. Lynch in one of the earlier episodes, this is a little bit of him trying to establish some control because he kind of is losing control over so many things. And at this point, he needs to get some control back in his life and some sense of, I'm in command of something. One of the things that makes this film really great, and and we've talked about this part before, so we may be repeating one element, but every time with a lesser screenplay and a less confident director this could easily have gone running face first into soap opera land. Something you know a little something about as a former soap writer. That the confrontation here is between two guys with their teeth clenched, no punches were thrown, voices weren't raised, and if you didn't know what was going on, like the the everyone else oblivious there had no idea that a near fight nearly broke out between the two of them and if if dana andrews had said you can't tell me i can't be with your daughter i'm a grown man which would have been the easy thing to say or we say if you go near my daughter again i'll kill you or i'll throw a punch that would have been the easy thing to say instead they didn't and the tension of the scene even though the scene ends the tension is still there because you don't have that release of a scream. You don't have that release of a punch. You don't have a release of a huge insult. And it's just very subtle that everything's under the surface in this, even though supposedly they're getting everything out. And of course, by paying for the drinks, that's Dane Andrews' way of saying, or Fred's way of saying to Al, you don't get to hang this over me. You don't have control over me. You're not going to buy my drinks, even though I'm complying with you. And it makes the scene so much more powerful than if there had been a fight or a screaming match. And it oddly reminds me a little bit of The Shining. And bear with me on this one, folks. But there are some moments, especially the scene when Danny goes back into the bedroom and his father and Jack Nicholson is sitting there. And if you just read the transcript of what was said, it just is like they're having a conversation but it's an incredibly tense, incredibly scary scene that doesn't have the release of an ax being pulled out or even blood coming through the elevator. And in an odd way, this is a similar scene to that, that it's the tension without the release.
1: I, I agree. It's also, there's another element too, which is they both win and they both lose the scene, which is mm. what makes it very interesting. The soap opera scene usually has a winner and a loser. Mm-hmm. and so they they tell you what you're supposed to feel but this is a very complicated scene so the things that al has said to fred even though it upsets fred i don't think fred disagrees with what al is saying right. i think i think fred has a very low opinion of himself he knows he's getting lost in in al's daughter he's trying to find a toehold himself. He doesn't have any control. These are two men that don't have control. And where Al doesn't have control over his family or his life or even his job anymore, because he's told what to do at his job. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed you're not supposed to give loans out to vets. All the things that he's like, I'm trying to do the right thing and he can't. Fred on the other side, yes, he has real emotions for Peggy, but he also knows this is inappropriate. So I think part of the reason why Fred gets angry, but also gives in, is because he knows what Al is saying is the same thing he feels about himself. And even though he takes some of the power back and throws the money down him, but he immediately walks off and goes to the phone booth.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and,
1: and, I- and, and, and Al is watching him the whole time.
0: Yeah, and I think that there is an element from Fred, Dan Andrews' character, that I get a sense, and obviously doing these episodes, I've watched not just the minutes, but the whole scene several times just to get the flow of it. There's a sense that a bunch of times he could have lied. He could have Mm -hmm. thrown, he could have flipped the table or something like that. And it's almost like Fred's playing the long game here. Like if I if I really have these strong feelings for Peggy, if I pick a fight with her father, now it's over. If I assert myself now, it's totally over. There's no way, I, there's, there's no turning back. And in some ways I have to prove my worth to Al here. And that might mean a strategic retreat that he knows he can't win over him in this in this booth right now. Uh, that's
1: possible. I mean, th- I think the reason, I think whenever you have a scene where two people don't win, <laughs> where mm-hmm. they both win and lose, what's interesting about it is, is that you can have two very different interpretations of the same scene. So I think the, that is your interpretation of Fred's point of view. I think Fred's point of view, I think he's much more defeatist here. Mm-hmm. I think he is not playing a long. I personally don't think he's playing a long game because I think if he were playing a long game, he would think, well, he would have picked a fight. He would have said, he, he may not have thrown a punch, but he might have said something different. Like, I'm going to prove to you that I'm the man that, that is right for your daughter. I actually think he, he does what Al wants him to do because he doesn't think he's worthy. And it's only until the very end of the movie where he kind of finds his worth, his validation, and that Peggy loves him. Al uh, and, um, and Millie kind of recognize like this, the, the guy loves her and she loves him. Like, what are we, what are we gonna do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he's not a bad guy. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, it oh, is, it, it, it's an interpretation. I think that's why this movie is so interesting. It doesn't just lay plant a flag and say, this is what the scene is about. Complicated movies like Chinatown and 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 the last detail, you can look at the same scene in very different ways, depending on your mood, depending run, on how running you. Running scared. Run, running scared, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. Running scared is a perfect example.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a
1: movie that you can look at a thousand different ways. The, the, every nev-
0: I've never met anyone who interpreted Running Scared the same way. Yeah. Mac it, and me is another one. Yeah, Mack It's a, it's an excellent one, Van Helsing. All these films where it's, it's like you watch the same movie and it's a, it's a different experience each time. I back to the point. I think you're right. It's and in fact the, that it took me multiple viewings of the same scene to come to that conclusion that there was an element. I was trying to think because there's so much in this scene that is under the surface and not said, and so. And I've been in situations where I felt kind of like I want A and I don't have enough arrows in my quiver to get what I want here. And a strategic retreat at this point may be the only thing to do, because if I try to pick a fight, if I try to to stand my ground, I have no I've got no ammo and I'm going to lose And so I'm better off just going along with they need. And I think that there's a lot going on. I think Fred is a fascinating character because he is one of the heroes of the film and so much is going wrong in his life. Like nothing is going his way. And he sees that Peggy is one of the only positive things going on in his life. And that in itself is a negative. The one positive in his life is being shown as, no, that's also a negative too. And it's also mainly a net negative
1: because of all the the crappy baggage he's bringing to it. Right, his marriage, his his inability to provide for her. That Mm -hmm. weirdly for Fred, the war was the best thing to happen to him for a while. Like he was an officer, and he was he was kind of the big man on campus. It's kind of like the kid that goes to college. And he's the football quarterback, and he does really well. And then college is over. Yeah. And then, and then in the real world, Al seems to have it all. We know differently. We know mm-hmm. that Al is wrestling with his own insecurities. We know that Al is being stepped on at work. We know that Al is being forced to do things at work that he doesn't want to do, and that he finds morally repulsive. So he he feels just. Dis- this is a real scene, I think, about two men. <laughs> who see um, the grass is greener on the other side in one sense that I'm sure Fred is looking at Al saying, you got everything. You got a wife, you got a good job. You never have to worry about your bills. Everyone loves you. And then from Al's standpoint, he's like, and you're a handsome, dashing, you playboy, you can do whatever you want. And, and Fred's like, I, I'm broke. <laughs> I, can't, I can't hold a job even at, at a soda jerk. Yeah, I, I'm drowning. And I, I think that's why when Al pops the fantasy balloon, and I think you're absolutely right. I think Fred thinks of Peggy as the one good thing in his life. But Al is saying like, so you're going to take the one good thing in your life, a good innocent girl who isn't married, who isn't caught up in all of your shenanigans, and you're going to infect her with you? And I think that is what ultimately lands on Fred, which is why he agrees to it, because he hates himself too, but tries to stick it to Al at the end with the money. All and right. it's 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 funny, it's like he wins in that moment, here's the money, but for what, a you know, $3 bill or something yeah. like that? That's, that's your big man on campus throwing down $3, but in, at the end of the day, I'm still going home to a crappy apartment and no job and,
0: and a loveless marriage and a, a family loveless marriage. Own. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's one of those things that when people talk about on social media, now you can't judge your life because your whole life and everyone else just posts their highlight reels. Right. Yeah, uh, so you know, it's like you can't judge how you're doing based upon what everyone posts on social media because you're only seeing the good stuff. And Uh, there's a little bit of that from fred looking at al saying he only see i was just thinking about you were just saying that he was sitting across the table and a lot of this scene is about two people being at a even even footing but he knows i'm not look at look at all everything he sees across the table everything he wants yeah stability respect family a wonderful woman who loves him The chance to be the respected paterfamilias, but we just saw in the previous scene, I think it's always, you always got to remember what we just saw, Mm -hmm. previous scene you saw Frederick March totally losing control of his wife, his daughter, and being alone in the hallway, the very hallway where he was welcomed home as a hero, he's now alone smoking and feeling like he doesn't even understand the world he lives in.
1: Well, and he's also a silhouette in that shot. Yeah, he doesn't even have a face. Yeah, he's like if that, that shot is literally my favorite shot in the entire movie. It's the most Citizen Kane shot I think in the whole movie, and and it's just such a powerful choice to use the lighting there to reuse that hallway, the moment of his coming back in, and even when he came back in, yes, he was he was welcomed as a hero. But for a beat, he was standing there and he—he he, it wasn't like a ticker tape parade. He immediately almost felt like a stranger in his own home.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I want to just sort of bring up something and I'm going to pay tribute to the man who started this whole thing, not William Wyler, but Jim O'Kane. Jim O'Kane is the head producer and the facilitator of the best minutes podcast he was the one who organized everything got all of us involved and has been the host of many movie by minute podcasts including the two that I guested on airport minute and rocketeer minute and I was listening to Jim on this means something which is Tierney and Chris's great podcast about close encounters and he was talking about vignetting the Mm -hmm. technique of vignetting Mm -hmm. which he felt which he's not a huge fan of. That's so much, for those who don't know, it's, a, it's basically a kind of a composition style of visuals where everything's focused towards the center of the screen, mainly because a lot of the projectors, the light was strongest in the middle, so they wanted the action right there in the middle. And a lot of times you saw even in old silent films there would almost be a border or sometimes a hazy frame around the the sides of a frame to sort of draw the attention to the middle. He was pointing out in Close Encounters there was a lot of vignetting of the visuals towards the center and maybe that's Spielberg being a traditionalist in terms of the composition. One of the people, one of the films that really challenged vignetting and putting information in corners and the sides was Citizen Kane. And that was one of the things that Wells did brilliantly. Of course, the cinematographer was Greg Tolan, the cinematographer of the best years of our lives. And as Jacqueline Lynch and I, Jacqueline, my previous guest, and I were talking about how in many ways this film is as beautifully shot as Citizen Kane without being as show-offy as Citizen Kane. There's more subtlety in the beauty. We are seeing for the rest of this scene that technique of putting information in the corners as opposed to vignetting, we're seeing that for the rest of the scene and beyond the minute that we're doing here. Because when Al stares down Fred and Fred goes, and the result of the entire confrontation is Fred calling up Peggy. And that happens in the corner of the screen. That doesn't happen head-on. They, they don't cut to him on the phone. The very result of the action is put on the left-hand side of the screen, and it's, shot, and it's beautiful, it's in focus, it's lit beautifully, but it's not a show-off shot. If someone's gonna be doing one, that, that Twitter feed of one perfect shot, this isn't that kind of great show-offy image that you would see, but it's no less effective. That but the- there's, al- there, there's also one other thing about that is mm-hmm. It makes Fred very
1: small. Right. So he walks all the way into the left-hand corner of the screen. He's perfectly lit and in focus. And you just see Al, the back of Al's head, much larger, mm-hmm. basically staring him down. But even before that happens, when Fred stands up, just, just to prove your point, the very center of the frame is a pole right, <laughs> that yeah. is in focus. And both men are on opposite sides of the pole. What's strange about the shot, but also is what's so brilliant about it, is we just see both of the, their backs. We don't need to see their faces. The pole does all the work for the scene. So these two men who had bondage, and had formed a friendship and and liked each other and had gone through war are now on opposite sides of the world and and to your point so it's start, and this is why i think in the end fred loses the scene is he goes from standing up throwing the money down he's on the right hand side of the scene he's taller mm-hmm. and there's this pole in between them so they're both on opposite sides but then the shot stays with him, and he becomes smaller and smaller until he steps onto Al's side of the screen, Frederick March's side of the screen. They could have had the phone booth on the other side, and just and that that would have told a different story. That would have told the story of, well, I'm going to be off in my corner of the room and do my thing. No, he comes onto Frederick March's side of the frame and becomes a tiny little man. Uh, an insect who even closes the door behind him. So he's in this little cage Mm -hmm. and all of that is in this one static shot, no movement, no camera move. This is one of those things. And you've talked, you and I have talked about Ozu being like really amazing as a director where he doesn't move the camera. He's just sets up your shot and he tells the story in the shot. And I, I love a early Coen brothers when the camera like in, in in Raising Arizona and Blood Simple where the camera's just flying all over the place mm-hmm. or, or Goodfellas but I really love it when you're watching something like an Ozu film or you're watching uh, High and Low by Kurosawa where it's just one shot and it's how the characters move within the shot and that's what this is doing. This is right. operating on the same level and it's <laughs> telling the story and it's also the back of their heads that's yeah. amazing and it's
0: and i you love can like two different t- styles i mean like i like i like ice cream and pizza i love airplane and i love the last emperor there's you can like two different and, and there is something really funny you had mentioned in a previous episode you love the movie the color of money of which the camera is basically doing somersaults in that film yeah and he had done just before that he had done after hours where a lot of times the camera movement was almost the character in the film, but yeah. you know, in, in, in this film, there's a, there's a lot more of the subtlety to it and continuing your point when Homer comes in the scene, which he, is a
1: new shot, by the way, the pole, is
0: gone. The pole but, is gone. But but when he walks over to Al yeah. when he walks over to there, Al goes to the other side of the pole. Yeah. Yes. And Homer meets him at the other side of the pole. And, yes. and on this side, there's friendship, there's warmth. And even, you know, Hoagie Carmichael, which comes over to the other, even he leans on that side. So the three of them are on, on frame right yes. together, being friendly, being happy. And all the way on the frame left is. We don't, and think of the discipline. We don't hear the conversation. Yeah. We're hearing Hoagie Carmichael and on Homer talking about are they going to play the freaking piano? And we don't hear the conversation, the discipline to do the scene where it's not, he's not focused on, he's not the set, he's not the center of the shot. Think of every, you've done daytime soaps and you've done nighttime drama think of every single showrunner that you've worked with that would say get in that phone booth and and, 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 that confrontation and instead whatever's being said whatever hurt is being felt by both of them at this point is so much more powerful in our noggin than if we had seen her crying because we just seen a whole damn scene of her crying also we know whatever he's going to say to her isn't true yeah, so he's
1: going he's going to be breaking up with her by just saying I have decided I can't see like he's he's just telling a lie to her. So we don't need to hear the details of the lie because it has no impact on the story. And the story, even though this is a very long movie, it never feels long. And it never feels long because every scene keeps changing. So think about this, we've just had this incredible encounter. Normally, you would never you would end on the money being thrown down. Or you would think, "Oh, we're ending on him going to the phone booth and we're that big emotional release or, or he watches him and then he walks out. But instead, the scene goes on and Homer comes in and Butch is there and they're totally oblivious. And someone like Homer who has suffered so much and is suffering so much and is trying to find his place in the world, but is still excited and, and wants to show something miraculous which he does, which is to play piano mm-hmm. uh, which is such a beautiful moment that 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 is going to knock Al on his heels so the when Homer comes in, the scene isn't about Homer. the reason why it works is it's not about Homer. I mean it's a little bit about Homer mm-hmm. because he's still finding a way his magical just beauty his soul is coming through and that that makes Al go. Wow, this is um, not how I expected (laughs) this scene to go. (laughs) I thought I was going to lay down the law. I won. It didn't feel good. And now Homer is is challenging my preconceptions again.
0: And in a way, isn't that a microcosm of the movie? Exactly. That the movie is about we came home from war, we won, and that's happily ever after. And normally in a scene like this, the confrontation would end he'd throw down the money we'd cut to the phone booth instead life lingers in ways that you don't expect which well
1: and and the movie is about all three of those guys i mean it's about it's about six characters really yeah it's 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 about the 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 three kind of romances Mm -hmm. but also the three men interacting with each other and their preconceptions of what they thought life would be and what america would be and what the Sacrifices meant and all of that is challenged so because this long scene and very emotional scene is as you said a microcosm of the entire movie it needs to have all three of them mm-hmm. so if I were writing the scene I would never have had the guts to have Homer come in or, or the or the intelligence because that's, that's real understanding of the themes and the, and the structure and what this scene is doing. It's not just the confrontation between father and daughter's you know, Sengali lover. It's about the three returning soldiers trying to find their place in post-war America. And that's why Homer has to come into the scene and uproot our expectations all over again you mentioned the color of money the the reason why i love the first scene of that movie so much is it's the entire movie in one scene it's paul newman is kind of just going by the numbers in in it and then he gets drawn back by the sound of tom cruise playing pool and seeing that oh there's there's this tiger circling the 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 felt and he's the best pool player i've seen in a long time raw but i used to be raw need some molding i know how to do that and suddenly he's back baby and that's what the whole movie is done in one scene and that's beautiful and this move this scene from beginning to end does this could have been a basically a four minute short film and done kind of in in a in a very truncated way what the entire movie does only without the female presence, which I think the female presence about this movie, even though they're not in this scene, the female presence is... It's felt. They're, she, they're all felt in this scene. They, are, they have their own agency. They have their own drive. They have their own desires. They're not... And 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 by the way, Myrna Loy was top bill.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she was the biggest movie star. I want to bring up just a couple last things here. Before... As Frederick March is going over to the piano, and before Harold Russell is going to start playing the piano, you'll note that he shoots one last look over to yep. Date Andrew. As if to say, all right, he's still doing that. And of course, it shows you how focused he is on that, that you're about to see a man with no hands play the piano. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's more he's just double-checking on this schmuck in the phone booth. But but you see Harold Russell's performance. As Homer the the naturalism the realism yeah I was, I was saying to Jacqueline Lynch that to have his New England voice yeah. you just want to you just want to go candle pin bowling the minute you hear hey how are you that there's 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 so many of the classically trained actors with the exception of those who would be playing like tough guys like Bogart or or James Fagney or Edward G. Robinson or you people Mm -hmm. playing comedic roles the Marx Brothers or Abel Costello would certainly sound Costello certainly didn't have a refined voice but in a drama I mean every actor has seemed to have gone to you know speech class and and nobody has a you know there's not they all talk like this yeah yeah they they have that 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 stage voice is what they have and so to have an authentic new england accent in the middle of a movie like this i was going to say sticks out like a thumb but that is a terrible analogy to make with harold russell but it, it it feels so real. I mean, it feels like a warm, a spoonful of warm chowder. And as you and I know, as two people who knew, grew up in New England, we, we all knew people who sounded exactly like him. And that it is not a, you know, for me, a phony New England accent is fingernails on a chalkboard. It's people trying to imitate a Kennedy, which yeah. is not what most New England, very few New Englanders actually sound like that. Most of them sound like, Harold Russell, who was from Wayland, who was the next town over from where you and I grew up, but that warmth and authenticity that he has is is so is such a, a wonderful change of pace in this scene. But as we know, we're as I was made with the you know, making the Instagram Facebook analogy, he's showing that hey. Look at how great I am. Look at how centered I am. Hey, like from the beginning, how him holding up the cigarette and, and nothing. Lighting, lighting, yeah, lighting. None of this bothers me. I'm even going to play piano. And Mm -hmm. we all know that that's a, that's a mask as well. Yeah. And that he's showing that, and everyone, God, he's he's really centered. And I'm sure anyone would say, "Man, that Homer, he went through, he lost his hands in in the war, and he's still happy. He's upbeat. He's smiling. He's great." Without at all taking into account what we see when he's alone. And, yeah, and that's, that that goes back to the whole.
1: Every one of these characters thinks the grass is greener with yeah. the other character. So even. You know, that like how can Homer be so upbeat and happy? Well, that's his coping mechanism. That's yeah. not because he's happy and carefree. He's like the kids think I'm a monster. Yeah. I, I don't know how to I, I can't take my arms off, my my prosthetic arms off around my my
0: my gal because I'm ashamed. But I have to have my dad do it. My dad and, do it. Yeah, yeah, and and so like how I mean how if, what could be more infantilizing than daddy? I need your help. Yeah, which
1: so is it's, uh, it's just a terrific movie. I'm I'm really I am I'm, I'm I'm really grateful and excited that this project exists because it it weirdly even though it won a ton of Oscars and there's a lot of people that seem to say like oh it's a great movie and all that but I think people see the runtime or they see the year that it came out. I know that a lot of young people don't like watching black and white movies, which is insane to me, but whatever. Um, But the very fact that there's still discussion about this and the very fact that you can get so much out of it and the very fact that it feels relevant today and that the the women are strong and smart and, and have a point of view and they're not just there to look pretty and they're not just there to tell the uh, Myrna Loy is a, a force of nature in mm-hmm. this in this yeah. movie It's just a terrific movie I think it's it's one of the rare type of movies which is both important and excellent
0: yeah and and it's and I said this and you and I have both said this in the previous is that this doesn't fall into the trap of and I think this is one of the reasons why I was reluctant to watch it way back when is that it had the 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 sense of this is Oscar bait this is an important movie this is a film oh how brave they were to make the thing and how proud we are of all of them and that this film would feel the equivalent of eating your vegetables they're like okay yes I know I'm supposed to admire this movie and the fact of the matter is is that it has held up as I said to you, I've seen every film that's ever won Best Picture. I've seen most of the nominees of all time. And there are some that are remarkable movies that will stand the test of time. Some remarkable films I saw from, you know, from the 20s and the 30s that, that still hold up, that are still great, great movies. And there are some that are like, oh, my God, this is old cheese right now. And we see this, you know, to this day, there are films that get nominated for Academy Awards. So you go like, really? You know, that is that even like when I go on my Oscar hunts each year, I go like, oh, God, I got to watch that. Yeah. All right, here we go. And then you kind of hold your nose. And it's a wonderful feeling when a film that you're kind of holding your nose to see. Yeah. Turns out to be something really great. And I think this is an all time classic and it should be mentioned with, and again, I think Casablanca is one of the great movies of all time. I think The Maltese Fox is one of the great movies of all time. And I think this, when you think about the great movies of the 1940s, this belongs up there. This belongs alongside, and you know, I put, you know, Citizen Kane's a great movie. I put this film alongside it. These are all films that survive. And this is, I think this is one of those rare movies that improves with multiple viewings. Because you oh, see yeah.
1: more things. I I, I I avoided it like the plague for decades. Saw it because of this podcast, and went, "Oh my god!" And I watched it now three times. Yeah, because I and I get something different each time. And it's not just I haven't just watched it for this podcast. I did that once. I watched it two other times because I wanted to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I bought it because
0: I realized yeah. I need to watch it from time to time. Yeah. Well, hey, Ted Sullivan. You were great on these episodes with me alone, and with Tim Decay, who was here for a couple episodes as well. And I want to thank Jacqueline T. Lynch, who was my guest on several episodes, and Brother Scott, who is also uh, who you remember as Scott Pomerank, when, but Brother Scott out there in Colorado, loving every minute of this film. Thanks, Brother Scott Michael, and my brother Ted. My actual brother, Ted, for being a part of this, this was, this was a great adventure for me to go on this. And uh, we gave a shout out to Jim O'Kane, who organized this whole thing. And obviously, he's a lover of movies. And he wanted so badly to do this movie specifically, because this is one of his favorite movies. The Man Has Good Taste. Ted, where can people find you in the world of the interwebs?
1: i am no longer on twitter but i am on instagram you can find me if you do a search for ted sullivan i'm at carter hall k-a-r-t-e-r-h-o-l and uh you can see many
0: pictures of my cats on there it's true and if you love cats not the movie but the actual cats you're gonna love that, and you could. And sometimes you, you can see uh, behind the scenes photos from oh, uh,
1: ri- ri- for Riverdale and for uh, that I that I write and some other stuff.
0: So. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some great behind the scenes pictures of all the shows that you worked on. And I'm still at Sully Baseball on Twitter. I'm at Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. You can follow the Locked On MLB podcast. You hear me yap about baseball all year long. And if you want to follow my old movie by minute podcast which is bull durham minute please please subscribe to that this is my last one for this this was a ton of fun and we are gonna in minutes 131 brett and josh who are the hosts of five minutes of bonsai where they break down the adventures of buckaroo bonsai five minutes at a time will be taking over the reins and no doubt they'll be doing a terrific job about that hey If you are on Facebook, please join us at Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listener's Cafe. We're also on Twitter at The Best Minutes. And there are over 170 Movie by Minutes podcasts, most of them done by Jim O'Kane, are available at moviesbyminute.com. Check them out. Your favorite movie is probably there. Thanks so much for these last couple of weeks. This has been... Minute 130, join the Buckaroo Banzai guys for 131 next time on the Best Minutes podcast. I'm your guest host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sullivan.
1: Deck, but she's taking off soon.
0: Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.